many of the Psalms do have titles that have been given to them by the Lord. Not them all, but quite often you will find a title uh, given to a particular psalm. I'm not referring so much to those little summaries that a Bible publisher might put upon a particular psalm or upon a particular chapter or even maybe a book in the Word of God. I'm talking about titles that are part of the inspired record. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, sometimes they form the first verse of a particular psalm. And there's actually one more verse in a Hebrew psalm than there is in our English Bible because they're counting the title as the opening verse, whereas that does not happen in our, our authorised version. So there are titles that are inspired. And even if you've got Psalm 45 opened in front of you, here are my, uh, the two pages of my Bible that I have opened, you can go back to Psalm 42 and see that there is a title there. And Psalm 44, there is a title. And then on into Psalm 45, Psalm 47, Psalm 48, Psalm 49. And you can work your way on through all of the Psalms, noticing uh, some of them have entitled, and then you'll come to some that don't have any. And they just start right into a particular verse. They're the exception, I would suggest. More often than not, there is a title of some sort that is given to particular psalms. Sometimes it's just telling you that it's a psalm of David. David wrote most of the psalms. He didn't write them all. For example, Moses wrote at least one psalm, possibly more than one. So David wasn't an exclusive writer of the psalms, but he certainly wrote the majority of them. And there are those that... Uh, the title will tell you that piece of information that this is a psalm of David some of them will also tell you the purpose of the psalm and you'll see that in the title in Psalm 45 here in a moment in fact it, it brings a, a number of purposes together here in, in this particular psalm but there are psalms that the title will tell you the purpose of them for example there are teaching psalms there are praising psalms there are psalms that are prayers so not all the psalms are exactly the same they're set to Hebrew meter that's, that's true, they were for the purpose of, of singing in the praises of the Lord but there were, there were different purposes behind the Psalms, you think about the Psalms of Degrees, or the Psalms of Degrees as many we would call it those songs that were sung as the pilgrims made their way up to uh, Jerusalem to worship and there were Psalms for a particular purpose and that's very evident, there's some alphabet Psalms that you'll come upon as well. Psalm 119 is the most well-known of the alphabet psalms. So there's, there's titles that are given to the psalms, some of them with different purposes, all teaching us, instructing us in some particular way as to how we are to understand uh, a particular portion of the Word of God. Now these four psalms that I have drawn to your attention and we're going to consider uh, this week, God willing, we can bring them under the heading of the Lily Psalms. And the reason why we're going to do that, because the, the, the term lily is mentioned in the title of these four psalms. There's no other psalms that have the, the title lily mentioned in them, other than these four psalms that I, I have mentioned. And if you look here at um, Psalm 45, for example, this psalm that we have opened before us at the present time, and if you look at the title, it'll say to the chief musician upon Shoshanim. You've already found the word lily. That word Shoshanim that is found in the title is this word for lily that you find in the word of God. In fact, this, this is the same word that is over in Psalm Solomon chapter 2. We're going to turn to that 
in just a little moment or two, but it's exactly the same word that appears in Psalm of Solomon chapter 2, and we read it there this morning on three occasions. We read it down through that particular chapter. We have read the word lily. It's exactly the same word. So that's why we can take Psalm of Solomon and what it tells us there and says how it's translated in our English Bible as the word lily and we can take that back then to these titles that appear because we don't understand uh, the title itself. Shoshanim is a Hebrew word and we mightn't recognize that uh, at all but if we understand that it's exactly the same word that's translated lily in Psalm of Solomon then we can bring that little piece of information back to these psalms and we can say, well, here's the four psalms where this title or this name appears in the title. These have to be Lily Psalms. And it wouldn't be too much of, it wouldn't be a jump of any imagination to say, well, if it's a psalm that has got the title Lily in it, then we can expect it to be about Jesus Christ. We can expect it to be about Jesus Christ particularly about Jesus Christ because is he not the one who is the lily of the valley as we read there in Psalm of Solomon chapter 2 so that's why we can come to these four psalms and, and pick out this particular word now sometimes it, it appears in, in different form because if you just note there as to the spelling of it in Psalm 45 and then if you come over to Psalm 60 We'll be picking up more particularly on these uh, as we go through and we come through the psalm itself uh, over the different nights. But just to, to highlight some of these matters now, because if you come to Psalm 60, which is the next in order, and you look at the title, it's a very lengthy title that is given, but the opening line of it says, To the chief musician upon Shushan, Edith. So there's a different form of it here. Here you have in Psalm 60, if that's the psalm that you've opened in front of you, that's the singular. The version that you have back in Psalm 45, Shoshanim, is the plural. The I am is the way of making it a plural, or one of the ways of making it a plural in the Old Testament language. You think about the word uh, cherub and cherubim. Cherubim is the plural. And we read about the cherubims that, that for example, looked over the altar, looked down upon the mercy seat when the altar was made and the mercy seat was made there were the cherubim and the, the I am is, is plural well you can see that in Psalm 45 the title is I am which is meaning that it's plural so one is just singular and the other is just plural but it's the same word this same thought that is to be found uh, that it's a psalm that it has to do with a lily in some particular way and therefore we can particularly think this psalm is going to teach us something about Christ because Christ is found in the Old Testament. It's certainly not in the same fullness as it is in the New Testament. We believe in, in progressive revelation. But Christ is still in the Old Testament. And we should look for Christ in the Old Testament. And when we're reading, even though it might be historical accounts or prophetic accounts, we should always be looking for Christ yeah. in, the full, in the volume of the book that is written of him. Remember what the Lord Jesus said about Abraham? That Abraham knew about Christ. That Abraham saw Christ's day. And John 8, at the end of John 8, you read that, that the Lord Jesus was speaking to the Jews and he told them, Abraham saw my day. Abraham could look down through the centuries and see a coming Christ. And knew about sacrifice, knew about substitution. 
the Lord taught him that great truth of substitution on Mount Moriah. And that's, that's one of the truths we're going to think about this week, for it's in these Psalms as well. And then the Lord said about Moses, he wrote of me. So you could go back to the books of Moses, even come to the psalm that's written by Moses, and you could say, well, the Lord Jesus gave us this testimony that Moses wrote of him. So we can look for Christ in the Old Testament on the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And we ought to find him. And I trust that the Lord will help us this this week as we consider uh, these things. If we go back to Psalm 45 for a moment, just before we we move on here, I want you to think there just what else is told to us in that title, and it will give us a little flavour of what we want to do this particular week, because as I mentioned, the title tells you something about how we're to understand the psalm. For example, you'll see there that it's a psalm for the sons of Korah, and then the word uh, maskil appears, and if you've got a margin in your Bible, you'll definitely find against the word uh, maskil that it means instruction. It's an instructive psalm. It's a teaching psalm. And wherever you find that, that term masculine, and for example, it's found there, Psalm 42, Psalm 44, just on the pages of my Bible that I've opened here in front of me. Those Psalms have that title, or that name as part of the title as well. So you could look at those Psalms and say, this Psalm's teaching me something. There's instruction here. And we know that is very important when we read the Word of God, that we are instructed from the Word of God. We take our our learning from God's Word. It's not our thoughts that matter. It's not my opinions. It's no good coming this today or this week and setting before you my opinion on anything. No, Paul said what saith the Scriptures. And that ought to be our our attitude at all times. In every matter, what does God's Word say about the matter? And if God has something to say about it, then we must follow it. We must put it into practice. So God's word teaches us and instructs us. But then Psalm 45, it tells you as well that it's a song of loves. It's a song of loves. There can be more than one purpose in a particular psalm. And that's evident here in Psalm 45. This is a psalm to stir up our love. And certainly I, I want to do that this week. I want to stir up your love and my own for Christ. That, that's all that's that's important. Do we love Christ? And do we love him more and more? And as we as we go on in our, our Christian life, does Christ become more and more precious to us? As we go through circumstances in life, is that what they teach us about anything else? Christ is precious, is precious and though we be loved him I suppose it has changed a little bit with modern means of communication social media and all but many of the letter was written from uh, between three people who loved each other there was a time that was the only way of communicating there wasn't instant contact by phones at all. It's, it's hard to tell your children that, you know, that there was a time when we lived without a mobile phone. You just can't think that the, the world existed without a mobile phone, and you can't get somebody on the other end of it instantly. And you had to send a letter. You know, it took days to get there. Yes, there was a time when you had to send a letter, and it took days to get there. So, it's been a long practice of 
of writing a letter from one person to another to tell somebody of their love for that person. Well, here's a song of love. It tells us Psalm 45. The writer is writing these words and through them he's wanting to make it known that he loves a particular individual. And that particular individual, I trust us, will come to see his Christ. And I, I would challenge you this morning, how, how great is your love for Christ? Is it all consuming? Is it the only thing that matters? Yes, we can love others. That's true. Love our spouses, love our children, love our parents, love the people of God. There's there's others that we love, but there's there's a love for Christ that that is greater than all of them. Do we love Christ? Do we love him with a passion? Because he means so much to us. I, I trust that that uh, he, he does. So in, in these titles we're going to find this out and then we're going to look at the contents of the psalm. Now I want you to go back over to Song of Solomon please this morning. And we're, we're going to think a little bit more about the lily. Before we come on to think about these psalms, we're going to think a little bit about the lily because if we can focus in our mind and fix in our mind as well some particular thoughts about Christ then we can come to these psalms during the court tonight and through the course of this week and then we can say well I want to look for these things. These are things that are going to come to the fore there when I read these lily psalms. Because these are things that are associated with, with the lily. And that's going to bring us then to um, Song of Solomon. And as I've already mentioned, three times in chapter 2 the word lily appears. Interestingly, eight times in total throughout the Song of Solomon you will find reference to uh, the lily. It begins here in chapter 2. There's three in chapter 2. And then if you want the references, chapter 4, verse 5 chapter 5 verse 13 and then uh, 2 in chapter 6 verse 2 and 3 and then the 8th one is in chapter 7 and it's the same word every time and it's found in the title of these psalms as I have been mentioned now in chapter 2 here where we were reading it starts off there by telling us I am the rose of Sharon the lily of the valleys and this is the beloved that is speaking here and the beloved is taken as a representation of Christ he is the one who is the beloved. There's the Shulamite whom, whom the beloved loves and sets, her, sets her, his affections upon. But the beloved himself, he is speaking here at the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And the Lord is here speaking. And then he goes on to speak about his redeemed people here as well. But it begins, this chapter begins with this. A uh, picture that is presented to us that is applicable to Christ. He's the rose of Sharon, he's the lily of the valley. And we're particularly thinking about that second description that is given here the one who is the lily of the valleys. Before we think a little bit about that, I want you to notice the second verse. Because then it goes on to speak about the, the, the Shulamite, the, the one whom the, the, the beloved has set his affections upon. And it says, as the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Do you, do you notice the difference there? In the first verse he says, I am the lily. And then he says about his, the one whom he loves and his affection for, he says, you are as the lily. I am the lily, you are as the lily. And there, there's a difference in that. There's one you see who has the character and all the essence of what we associate with a lily, as we'll come to see here in a moment. But then he says to his beloved, you're, you're like the lily. 
<coughs> and that's the reminder that you and I are to take on the likeness of Christ. That we are those who are saved and have come to know Christ. We were going to take on the likeness of Christ. We've come to Christ. We've been regenerated by His Spirit. And the whole purpose of redemption, as we're told in Romans 8, is to conform you and I to the likeness of His dear Son. That's why the Lord saved you and me. He loves His Son so much, He wants you and me to be like Him. And he's going to save a people with that purpose. That's the great purpose of redemption. It's more than just delivering us from hell. Salvation does that. And we're thankful to be delivered from our sins. And to be delivered from going down to hell. It's more than just having the Lord's presence with us day by day. That's a great blessing. That we rejoice in and give thanks to. That the Lord is with us day by day. Ultimately the great purpose in redeeming sinners. Is to make them like his dear son that we might be conformed to the image of his dear son. And that is brought out here in Song of Solomon, and chapter 2, and the second verse. Because speaking here about the one whom the beloved has set his affections upon, he says, as the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. We, we are taking on the likeness of the lily. We take on the likeness of Christ. And, and that thought is is uh, found elsewhere in the Word of God as well. Turn over to Hosea chapter 14. A little prophecy of Hosea just after Daniel. Daniel, Hosea, go right through the last chapter of Hosea, chapter 14. And you can find the verse there, it's verse 5, where it speaks about the lily. And it's used in this connection about the people of God growing like the, the lily maybe we'll read verse 4 as well just to take in the whole context Hosea chapter 14 verse 14 I will heal their backsliding I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from him I will be as the Jew unto Israel and he shall grow as the lily so here's spiritual growth pictured for us Oftentimes you'll hear maybe preachers preach on this portion of harvest time harvest thanksgiving services uh, I've done it myself in, in the past because there's a picture here of spiritual growth and one of the descriptions that is given here is this growth that says it to grow as a lily how, how are you and I to grow as a Christian we to grow like Christ or we can break that down into other parts but chiefly how am I to grow and develop as a Christian how are you to grow and develop as a Christian as Christian life goes on from whenever you were saved we're to grow like Christ we're to become more like the Saviour there's to become upon our lives, our countenance, our character our thoughts we're to be more like Christ and that's brought out here in this, this picture that that they're going to grow as other so there's that important distinction that is to be noticed in Psalm of Solomon chapter 2 between the one who says I am the lily and then the one whom he describes as a lily one is Christ the other is his, his people taking off the likeness of Christ have you ever noticed how the lily is mentioned in connection with the temple let's go back and, and, and look at that for a moment First Kings chapter 7 tells us something about the the building of the temple. First Kings chapter 7. And the lily was represented in 
in building up of the temple, there were certain features that had to have lily work upon them. And that, no surprise then that we think, yes, the lily is about Christ. There's certain things that it represents about the Saviour, and we're going to think about those uh, just a moment, but there's certain things about the Saviour that is represented in the lily. So it'd be no surprise then that we come to the temple and we find that among all of that that Solomon did, and remember, he built it according to a plan given by the Lord to David. Solomon didn't decide what was going to be in the temple. David received the plan from God. Just the same way as Moses received the plan of the tabernacle from God. And he built it according to the word of the Lord. So the, tab- the temple was built according to the plan of God. And in that plan, Christ is at the center, as we know. The whole plan of redemption has Jesus Christ at the center. And in the temple, there's mention made about the lily. First Kings chapter 7. And there's three verses here. Uh, verse 19, verse 22, verse 26. And you will find the lily mentioned. Verse 19, verse Kings 7, verse 19. The chapters that were upon the top of the pillars were of lily work. In the porch, four cubits. Verse 22. Upon the top of the pillars was lily work. So was the work of the pillars finished. Twice over there it is mentioned. They, they were not to miss that particular little detail. There's lily work on those magnificent pillars that form part of, of uh, the temple. Then come down to verse 25 here and we're thinking about the molten sea and this is also mentioned in Second Chronicles as well. There was that great molten sea. Verse 23 starts the, the record about that ten cubits from one brim to the other it was round uh, its height was five cubits a line of thirty cubits to compass it and then it mentions about the, the brim and how the brim was a, a hand breadth thick a hand breadth from your, your your thumb to the point of your little finger was the, 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 the breadth of this brim that ran around this molten sea and verse 26 says and it was a hand breadth thick and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup with flowers of lilies the lily appears again because it has such a great connection with with Jesus Christ so there, there's all of these mentions that are made in the word of God about the, the lily now what I want to do for the remaining time this morning is to suggest to you some things that, that we associate with the lily that are applicable to Jesus Christ. And the first one is the beauty of the lily. The scripture emphasizes the beauty of the lily. The lily was a most beautiful flower. It was tall, it was appealing to the eye. Remember how the Saviour contrasted Saul in Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount, verse 28 and 29, it says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now Solomon had a magnificence about his kingdom. Remember the Queen of Sheba, how she was amazed, and she said, The half has not been told me when she came to see Solomon in the splendor of his kingdom. And there's a, there was a, a great splendor, a magnificence about Solomon and, and his kingdom, all the wealth that there was in that. And the Lord Jesus says to those who were listening to him that day on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do you see the little lily growing out there? Even Solomon in all his glory was not a red like one 
So there's there's a beauty to the living that transcends even Solomon and all his magnificence. So we can certainly then start to, to think about like this. There's a beauty about the lily and surely there's a beauty about Christ. The Lord Jesus said himself in Matthew's Gospel 12, chapter 12, verse 42, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon. And he was referring to himself. And whatever beauty there was about Solomon's kingdom, there's a greater beauty about Jesus Christ. And that's something that we want to think about this particular week. We want to think about the beauty of Christ. The loveliness of Jesus Christ. And there is a loveliness about Christ. Now it's true those out in the world don't see any loveliness in Christ. We're told that in Isaiah 53. They see no beauty in him that they should desire him. He's looked upon as a root out of a dry ground, no form nor comeliness. And we, when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire. That's how the unconverted look upon Christ. And they, they can't understand these Christians that they should have a love for Christ. What, what is the attraction? They can't see that. They can't understand why is it that a Christian should so make so much of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ should mean so much to them and that they even speak about loving Christ they don't see any beauty in Christ because there's scales on their eyes and you and I would just be like them if the Lord had not taken the scales off our eyes and made us to see the loveliness of his in Christ maybe we should turn over there to Isaiah 53 and, and notice just the, the, how this is set out because you know, what, is, what is the loveliness that is in Christ? What is it that you and I have come to see in Jesus Christ that means so much to us? I will suggest to you that the loveliness, the beauty that is in Jesus Christ is the sender. The one who is stained in his own blood. That's the beauty that is in Jesus Christ. And if the scales have never been taken off your eyes to see that, you'll never see any beauty in Jesus Christ. And that's why the unsaved don't have any see any beauty in Christ. They, they have no idea. They have no sense of meaning a sin bearer. They don't even have a sense of their own sin at times. Why would they need somebody to bear away their sins and bring to them forgiveness when they don't even feel and acknowledge themselves to be a sinner? But you start to feel yourself to be a sinner. And I, I trust that that has happened in your life. Uh, those listening, either here in the meeting or, or online, I trust that you have been made to feed yourself. And then you have been made to desire Because that's the beauty that is in Jesus Christ. And you'll never see beauty in Christ until you begin, and I begin to realize I'm a sinner bound for hell. If I'm not saved from my sins, that's where I will spend eternity. When you begin to feed yourself sick with sin, then you'll desire a remedy. That's like going to the, the doctor. You'll go to the doctor when you start to feel ill. When, when all's well, I mean, they have the worst out of When all's well, I mean, when you have the pain, you still don't want to go to the doctor. But you usually have no interest in going to the doctor. When all's well, and when you feel heart healthy and hearty, you start to be unwell. Then you begin to think, I, I need the doctor. I need somebody to, to go and see about this. This could be serious. And it's the same spiritually. Once we begin to feel ourselves to be sinners, and the work of the Holy Spirit 
is to bring that about. Once he works within us and begins to make us to feel that we are sinners, then we'll start to desire a Savior. But I realize, and you realize, that I am bound for hell if I am not if I'm not delivered from my sins. And then we hear the message of the gospel. There's a Savior from sin. There's one who came from glory and went to the cross. Who took our nature, took our place, and died for us. Oh, we'll start then to listen. We'll start then to see the beauty in Christ. Because we have begun to feel, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And it's not what is set out for us here in Isaiah 53. It starts off in those opening verses there about no beauty in Christ. If you want to summarize that, that wonderful chapter. And who has believed our report? They're not even interested in listening. And sadly, that's true today more than ever. And we know that in this country. And sadly, it's ever increasing in our own country back home. People don't want to hear, not interested. Oh, what a glorious message to listen to. But they're not interested. And the reason they're not interested, they don't see any beauty in the subject of the preaching. That's because it's not the problem with the preaching, it's not the problem with the subject. The problem with their eyesight, their spiritual eyesight, they cannot see. But look at verse 4, and here's the new section. He's saying, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see the changeover? from having no attraction seeing nothing in Christ that's appealing and it all changes and it all changes when we begin to realize and see Jesus Christ as the sinner surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and unless we have looked upon Jesus Christ in that way we'll never see any beauty in that this is the beauty that is in him. This is the loveliness that is in Christ. One hanging on the cross, stained in his own blood, as he shed that blood for rebels and for sinners, the blood out for transgressors. That, that's the beauty that is in Christ. Wasn't it Brother Ford that said, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on the pierced hand, the Lamb has all the glory. Amen. Amen. The pierced hand? Yeah. That's the beauty that is in Christ, Christian. And love Christ for the fact he gave his life for you. He died to shed his blood. But we hasten on. The second thing I want you to consider about the lily that is emphasized is the lily is known for its whiteness. Now we like our orange lilies back in Ulster. <laughs> I don't know orange lilies out here, but we like our orange lilies in Ulster. But the lily in the Bible was white. It was said to be to be white. And again, that has got a particular application to Jesus Christ in two ways. First of all, it emphasizes the purity of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ can't die for you and me if he's got sin himself. He would, he would have to answer for that. How could he answer for your sin and my sin if he had sinned himself? But the Bible presents him as a sinless Christ. In fact, it goes further than that. The Bible presents him as an impeccable Christ, 
And by that we mean, not only did he not sin, he could not sin. And he could not sin. I still remember Mr. Beggs, who lectured in theology and must be college when I was at the Bible College. And he used to always say in his theology class, or class brethren, make much of Christ. Lift him as high as you can. Amen. And lifting up Christ, we declare him, he's impeccable. Not only did he not sin, he could not sin. He was the eternal Son of God, manifested in human flesh. And even his virgin birth safeguarded him from the temple of sin. That's why the, the virgin birth was necessary. It wasn't that just the Lord decided, well, I'll send my son into the world and I'll send him by a virgin birth. He was virgin born to safeguard him from the taint of original sin so that his impeccability would be maintained and that today we can lift up a Christ and say this is a sinless Christ even his enemies couldn't find fault in him Pilate it would have salved Pilate's conscience if he could have found fault in Christ and yet on a number of occasions he said to the Jews I find no fault in this man Herod, Pilate sent him to Herod because Pilate was in a quandary and a dilemma and didn't want to make the decision and he heard that the saviour was from Galilee and he thought here's the perfect way out of this he sent him to Herod Herod mocked him, set him at naught wanted the saviour to do a miracle the Lord never spoke a word to to Herod and that was because Herod had his opportunity under John the Baptist and didn't take it but Herod sent Christ back to Pilate and said I find the fault in this man what about the centurion of the cross that darkness had descended and there was that cry that came out from the darkness and then as time went by the final set of cries and finally Christ cried it is finished and the time was <coughs> the centurion who said surely this was a righteous man this man hasn't died like other men and what about Judas when he went into the temple with the 30 pieces of silver and he threw them down on the floor of the temple and he told the chief priest I have betrayed the innocent God even his enemies had to testify to his, his sinlessness. He's the, he's the impeccable Christ. But the scripture testifies to it. In Hebrews, it tells us that he's holy, harmless, undefined, separate from sinners. That's how the scripture sets him out. He said himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in him. Nothing. The devil couldn't find even the most little thing in Jesus Christ that was a fault of God. Nothing, nothing in me, nothing of sin. And in that Christ fulfilled that wonderful type that he is the lamb without spot and without blemish. That set out for us in the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but Peter quotes that in reference to Christ and his blood. That's why there's power in the blood today to cleanse it's impeccable blood. It's the blood of a sinless God. And oh, what power to cleanse and what power to atone today for our sins. Our sins which were many, our sins which were great, our sins that would have taken us down to hell. Blotted out by the power that's in the precious blood. The other thing that the whiteness of the lily teaches us too is that of eternity. For example, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, that description of Christ, it says his, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
So when John saw that vision of Christ, he, he, he picks up on that. His, his hairs were as white as wool, as white as snow. And what does that refer to? Well, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, you, you find scripture defines that. that. That's what we always ought to do. That, that scripture be its own dictionary and its own point of reference. Daniel 7 and verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and his, the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame his wheels as burning fire. The ancient of days whose garment is white as snow. You even tie in the whiteness with the fact he's the ancient of days. He's the eternal one. And what can we say of, of Jesus Christ? He's God's eternal son. He's God's eternal son. He's been his son from all eternity past. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's no mere man. No mere man. Not, 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 not just a good man. Not just even the best of men. No, he, he's the God man. He's the eternal son of the eternal God. And that's, that's brought out in the day. We're, we're going to think about that this week. Especially tonight, when we think about him as a sovereign. Because he's, he's the eternal sovereign. He's king of kings. Lord of lords. Lastly, I want you to think about this. That Christ, the, the lily is found in the valley. You'll see that there in Song of Solomon chapter 2. And that statement in verse 1. The lily of the valleys. So the lily was associated with the valley in the land of Israel it was a land of hills and valleys it didn't grow in the hills it grew in the valleys it said that there were whole swathes, plains in the land of Israel covered with this white lily it was a very fruitful flower reproducing itself across the valley floor until quickly whole swathes of the plain were covered with this sea of white it was principally a flower of the valley well, how do we apply that to Jesus Christ? Doesn't the Bible remind us of the one who was made a little lower than the angels in order to see us sinners? It represents the lowliness of Christ, the humility of Christ. Here, here is the one who came down from the splendor of heaven down into this world. And he came down to be the lowest of men. Not, not just to be a man. He, he did that, but he became the lowest of men. How do we know? Well, turn over to Philippians for a moment. And Paul, they're speaking of, of Jesus Christ and what he says of, of the Saviour as he as he made those downward steps, Philippians chapter 2. And here's the one who, who leaves the, 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 the throne of God, the seat of David. Philippians chapter 2 and verse uh, 5 it says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus and then he starts to speak about Jesus Christ in verse 6 who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God so there he is on the throne of deity equal with his father he has to be the eternal son then you see as we've been saying that he's going to be the equal of the eternal God and then he begins the descent and that descent takes him right down to the end of verse 8 where it says that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the thought there is of through the death of the cross. He was obedient in death. He lay under the power of death for a time for you and me. He could have, he could have come up from the grave. 
As soon as they put him in the grave, he could have come from the grave, but he didn't. He lay under the power of death, yielding and submitting himself to the power of death for a time. Because he was going to conquer the grave for his people and take away the, the terrors of the grave for you and me when we come to die. Well, look at verse 7 here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, with this we'll, we'll conclude. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. The form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. Yet he came into this world, he took our nature, took on to himself true humanity. He was a true man, but Jesus Christ became the lowest of men. He became a servant. From the highest throne of deity to the lowest form of man. He didn't come into the world to be a prince, though he was a prince. He didn't come in to sit upon a, into the world to sit upon a throne, although he left the throne, and one day he'll sit on a throne again. He came into this world to be the lowest. The lowest <coughs> servant. If I remember right, I maybe need to change it and correct it if I'm wrong, but I think it's the word doulos. Means of <coughs> there were hired servants, paid servants. There were others who were who were an unpaid servant who was a bond slave. And if I remember right, it's the word here, bond slave. He became the lowest of men. <coughs> Talk about humility. That Jesus Christ would would come down from the heights of glory down into this this world. He most certainly did. And he came to redeem his people. He came for sinners. Like you and me. Remember that day? I have it here in my, my notes about the day that they, he went into Jerusalem riding upon the coat, the fold of an ass. They cried out, Behold your king. And yet look at him coming so lowly into Jerusalem. Going to the cross. Suffering, bleeding, dying. Why? For his people. To save sinners. To save rebels. To save those who, who were unworthy and undeserving. Oh, this, this is our Savior. This is Christ Jesus. And we want to find him like that this week. As we think about some of these psalms, we want to think a little bit more about some of these truths and how they're brought out in these particular psalms. As I do, I, there is that desire that Christ would be precious to us and then we would be like Christ. We would seek to be like him in our lives more than Because that's how best we can be a witness for Christ. Be like Christ. That's the best witness. Be like Christ. May the Lord bless his wife this morning. Too.